Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome to Forest Park. As you make your way back to your seats, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. Um, and before we go uh, and get into the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for today. Um, Lord, thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Thank you uh, for your initiating salvation. Lord, as we read in Isaiah where he is standing in your presence and he is recognizing his uncleanness, you initiated and provided a way for him to be made clean. And that is what you've done for us through your son, Jesus. You were the one who initiated our salvation by sending your son, Lord. And you accomplished our salvation by dying on the cross for our sins. And your Holy Spirit regenerated us. Lord, thank you for that. Um, Lord, I pray that um, as we get to your word, can you speak to us? Um, Lord, we're going to discover in your word that through the resurrection, you will defeat death forever. Death will be dead forever. And Lord, as we look around and what's going on in our world, as we look at the war in Ukraine, as we look at the earthquake in Afghanistan that have claimed over 2,000 people, as we look at the war now in Israel of over 600 casualties, Lord, all we see is death. And Lord, it is so sad and it breaks our heart. And all we can say in the midst of all this destruction is, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come and make all things new. Come and raise up the dead so that we can say, death is dead forever. Death, where is your sting? And so, Lord, I pray that the, this word would encourage our hearts that it would strengthen us, that it would help us to persevere as we find ourselves living in a world that is chaotic and unraveling. Help us to remain steadfast, immovable, and excel in every work that you have given us. Minister to our hearts. Lord, give us comfort where we need to be comforted. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And Lord, convict us where we need to be convicted. And Lord, we ask you to show up in this moment as we study your word. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. In chapter 15, we're wrapping up chapter 15. Paul is kind of wrapping up the last major issue where there were some Christians in the church of Corinth um, that kind of denied the resurrection of the dead body of believers. And so last week, Paul addressed how the dead are going to be raised and what our resurrected bodies will look like. And basically, Paul's argument last week was like, look, we learned that if, if God's transforming power is common throughout nature... It's reasonable for us to assume that God can transform the dead body of believers. Like if God can design different bodies to flourish in different environments, it's reasonable for us to assume that God can design the resurrected body to flourish in the new eternal kingdom of God. Like if God can create different bodies with different splendors or different magnificence, then God can clearly raise the dead body of believers. And so that was Paul's argument last week. And then he kind of revealed to us what our resurrected bodies will look like by contrasting our earthly bodies with our heavenly bodies. And, and, and Paul said the earthly body is 
perishable, but the heavenly body is imperishable. The earthly body is lowly. The heavenly body is gloriously attractive. The earthly body is weak. The heavenly body is strong. The earthly body is natural. And the heavenly body will be both, will be supernaturally empowered and characterized by the Holy Spirit. And what is the certainty we have of the resurrection? It is Jesus who is a life-giving spirit, the last Adam, because of his resurrection and we bear his image. His victory is our victory. We have the certainty of the resurrection. And so today Paul is wrapping up and really showing us that God must transform our corruptible mortal bodies of both dead and living believers into incorruptible and immortal bodies. And by doing this, we are going to learn that death will be defeated forever. So let's look at our text in verse 15. It says this, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed forever. So, so let's just stop here. So notice in verse 50, Paul makes two statements that really one and the same. The first statement is, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And the second one is this, which is very similar. Corruption or perishable cannot inherit the incorruption or the imperishable. Why? Because our earthly bodies, which is flesh and blood, whether dead or alive, are deteriorating. So how can something that is deteriorating, something that cannot last forever, how can it inherit the kingdom of God that lasts forever? And in and, and other words, how can bodies that are deteriorating live in a sphere or in a location that is eternal? And the answer is, it cannot. Just like the unrighteous are not fit to inherit the kingdom of God, our earthly bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And that means, if that is true, God must transform our earthly bodies into heavenly bodies. He must. And that's Paul's argument. He must do it. It's not optional. He, he must do it. And then Paul says, what I'm telling you is a mystery. And you're like, okay, well, what's the mystery? I don't think the mystery is that not all believers are physically going to die. Because Paul has already revealed that to another church in Thessalonica. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 to 17, For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, what he is saying, when Jesus comes back and to gather us and to raise up the dead, those who are alive are not going to die and then be resurrected. They who are alive will be transformed into their resurrected bodies. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will left will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be always with the Lord. So what's the mystery? 
The mystery is not that every believer will physically die, but rather the mystery is that this transformation, this resurrection that is taking place, that is the mystery because our minds just cannot wrap around the idea of how this body in an instant is going to be transformed into something glorious, into something heavenly. This is the mystery. And then in verse 52, Paul kind of declares the, the timing of this transformation. Look at verse 52. It says the three words he's using. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. In other words, in a moment, in a moment, God is going to transform our earthly bodies into a heavenly body. It's going to be an instant, a split second. And then he uses the phrase, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, in the English language, in our phrase, this idea kind of is the idea of bright, flashing, lightning, kind of sparkling. However, this phrase in the Greek has nothing to do with lights, but rather emphasizes speed. So I think a better English language to use this is in a blink of an eye. In other words, it's going to be instant. It's going to be rapid. It's going to be at a split second. And when will this happen? He says, at the last trumpet. As the trumpet blows, which signals the end of the age, the end has come. And when we hear the trumpet, God will in an instant, in a split second, in a blink of an eye, transform, resurrect our earthly bodies into heavenly bodies. And so this mystery, this mysterious supernatural resurrection that Paul is revealing to us if you're taking notes. And I think this is the first thing we can learn is this, is that this resurrection is not progressive, but it's instant. It's not a progressive thing that over time we're being transformed and we're receiving our heavenly bodies, uh, kind of like a little plant that shoots up and, and it starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. No, our transformation, our resurrection is going to happen instant. Praise the Lord for that. Because our salvation is instant and progressive, but our resurrection will be instant and not progressive whatsoever. It will be done when he comes back. And now Paul is going to explain why this resurrection must take place. Look at verse um, 53. And notice he uses two phrases again that are one and the same. Verse 53 says this, For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. This mortal body must be clothed with immortality. And when this corruptible body is in, was clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? Notice the, the parallel between verses 50 and verse 53. Two statements, one and the same. And in verse 53, he says, this corruptible, this perishable body, notice the certainty, must be. It must be clothed and incorruptible and perishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. 
In other words, what he is saying is that God has planned to transform our corruptible, our mortal bodies, whether dead or alive, into corruptible, into immortal bodies. And and this idea of clothing is the idea of putting on really is is a metaphor that refers to taking on the characteristics and the virtues of Christ's resurrected body. And so after the transformation or the resurrection has occurred, look at what will happen in verse, 50, uh, verse 54. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality. In other words, after the resurrection, then this saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? In other words, what Paul is saying, if you're taking notes, is that after the resurrection, death itself will be dead. I know it's kind of weird to think about it. But after the resurrection, death itself will be dead. It will be dead forever. It will be no more. Let me show you. Um, After the resurrection, it really fulfills with death being swallowed up in victory. Um, It's really the fulfillment of Old Testament passages. And what Paul does, he quotes two Old Testament passages, um, but but both of them he kind of quotes a little loosely. So the first passage that he quotes where he says, death has been swallowed up in victory, um, that comes out of Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. Now, when you read Isaiah 25, verse 8, it says this, when he has swallowed up death once and for all, The Lord God will wipe away every tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth, for the Lord has spoken. But notice what Paul says. Paul quotes Isaiah 25 verse 8, and he says, says, death has been swallowed up in victory, wherein Isaiah says it's been swallowed up once and for all. But really this phrase in, in victory in Greek is a Hebrew saying that means forever. In other words, what, the, what Isaiah is saying, what Paul is saying is this, that death will be dead forever. So in other words, it doesn't mean like after the resurrection, death is dead and there's a chance that death might come back. No, it is dead forever. So when he says death has been swallowed up in victory, he's not saying it's been defeated, it's been destroyed, and it's just laying there, and it might make a comeback in thousands of years. It's saying it is finished. It is over. It is swallowed up forever. Second passage he quotes where it says, where death is your victory, where death is your sting, is from Hosea 13 verse 14. In in Hosea, he says, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol. I will redeem them from death. Death, where are your bobs? Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Now, the original context of Hosea was, was this is God judging the nation of Israel and what he is promising after his judgment that he will restore them. And really what Paul is doing, he is taking this passage and he's seeing how this passage is fulfilled in the sting-absorbing death of Jesus Christ. So in a sense, Jesus took on the judgment of Israel. And his victory is now their victory, which is similar for us. Jesus took our judgment on his death. And his victory now 
is our victory. And because of Christ's death on our behalf, Paul and Hosea and God through the Spirit, revealing through Isaiah and Paul, in a sense is mocking death, saying, death, where are you? What can you do now? And the answer is, not a thing, because death is dead. And Paul now explains to us the sting of death that impacts us all. So even though we've not experienced this yet and we're hoping for the experience to come and that experience of the resurrection will be instant and death will be dead forever in an instant, this is still going on. Look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks to be to, be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, as we look at this text, I think all of us can say there's two phrases we need to unpack, right? Because I'm sure all of you are like, okay, what in the world does, this, does, does it mean that the sting of death is sin? Okay, maybe we can explain it. But what in the world does the power of sin is the law? So let, let's unpack the first one. What, is, what does Paul mean by saying the sting of death is sin? Um, to kind of get that answer, we've got to go back to the beginning. So God told Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, he says, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat from it, what will happen? You will certainly die. In other words, the, the result of sin, the, the consequences of sin is, is death. And even though Adam and Eve did not physically die on the spot, they they died spiritually. Because what is sin? Sin is a rebellion against God. Sin creates a separation between us and God. And if God is life and is the author and the source of life, when you detach yourself from God, who is life, what do you experience? Nothing other than, than death. And that's what sin does. In other words, what sin does, it breeds destruction and death. As long as sin remains, death continues. That's why Paul calls the sting of death sin. In other words, sin is the poison that keeps feeding death. As long as that poison is continuing and as long as that poison is spreading, What's going to happen? Death. And that's why Paul says the sting of death is sin. So how do you defeat death? Remove sin. Remove the poison. There'll be no more death. But as long as the poison continues, death continues. What feeds sin? What feeds the poison? Look at the, the second phrase. The power of sin is the law. Now, this part is very confusing for us because on one hand, the law is good because the law comes from God and the law is meant to protect us. The law is meant to, in a sense, to restrain evil. Okay? Like, for, for example, uh, why are there speed limits? To protect some of you reckless drivers from... Well, no, protect us from you reckless drivers. Sorry, my dyslexia is kicking in here. 
but, but, but law is meant to, to restrain. Imagine if there's no speed limits. Imagine if there's no law. Well, some people say it actually works out uh, in some like the Philippines. There's no laws and yet there's no accidents when it comes to traffic control. So that's a bad analogy. But, but that the point of, uh, of the law is to restrain evil, is to protect us in a sense. But what Paul is saying is, yeah, that's true, but law also empowers sin. You're like, how in the world does law empower sin? Well, sin could not have seduced Adam and Eve if God did not give them the first commandment. God told them, we read Genesis 2.17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on that day you, you eat of it, you will certainly die. So eat everything, just do not eat that. God established his law and he gave them a commandment. And as a result of that law, as a result of that commandment, temptation came in, seduced them, and they broke God's law. And so in a sense, what Paul is saying, what the law does, it energizes sin. It energizes sin by by giving it a death-dealing Power. How? Well, Paul says in Romans 3.20, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. If I did not have the law, I would not know what sin is. Romans 5.13, sin is not counted where there is no law. In other words, what he's saying, if there was no law, there would be no sin. Romans 4.15, what does the law do? The law brings wrath. Like, this is really bad news. And in our minds, we're like, Okay, so hold on here. If there was no law, we would not have sinned. Then why in the world would God introduce the law to us? What's the purpose of the law? If all it does is energizes sin and causes more sin and more death. Well, I think a good, that's a good question to ask. And I think a reasonable answer we see in the New City Catechism, question 15, where it says, since no one can keep the law, what's the purpose of the law? And it says that we may know the holy nature and will of God, that we may know the sinful nature and disobedience of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior. And here's the whole purpose of the law. It reveals to us who God is. It reveals to us how sinful we are. And it reveals to all of us that we need what? We need a Savior. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, look, the sting of death is sin. Sin is the poison that constantly feeds death. And what energizes this poison is the law. But look at the second verse. I love this big but in verse 57. It says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what does he say by that? Thanks be to God. Thanks for God's initiating salvation. That he initiated our salvation by sending his son who took on flesh, who walked among us, who fulfilled the requirements of the law and also satisfied the curses of the law. So in other words, not only did Jesus fulfill the law by not breaking it, he also took the curses of the law that all of us deserve for being lawbreakers. And because the law has been fulfilled in Christ, and because the penalty of the law has been paid, that means his victory is our victory. And that means this new law that God is going to give us is going to be a law that is going to be written in our hearts. And it's no longer going to empower sin, but it is going to be a law law that is life-giving for 
his people. Thanks be to God. Because of Christ's victory, that's our victory. And what does that mean? God will transform our bodies into incorruptible, immortal bodies. And by doing that, God will destroy death once and for all, forever. There's no comeback for death. There is no more sin. There is no more sting. There is only victory in Jesus Christ. Now we come with the real practical. If all of this is true, in other words, in light of this truth, if the resurrection is true for us, this transformation that is waiting for us, this destruction of death forever, what does it mean for us today? How, how do we apply this to our lives? How do we live our lives when we find ourselves still living where it seems like death is ruling? It seems like more people are dying. It seems like there's more destruction going on, and yet we have this glorious hope of this resurrection that is waiting for us. How do we navigate through life in midst of the destruction where it seems like sin is just, uh, the poison of sin continues, death is being more energized than ever before, more people are breaking the law, there's no more morality almost whatsoever. How do we live our lives in light of in that environment, yet with the victory of the resurrection that we're holding on to? And Paul says, great question. Look at verse 58. He says this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So three words, phrases that we see here that we will apply to our lives. How do we live in light of this glorious resurrection that is waiting for us as we find ourselves living in a world that is just full of death and destruction? The first thing is, if you're taking notes, be steadfast. Be steadfast. What does it mean to be steadfast? It means to be firmly or solidly in place, to hold on to the truth. Um, I never really paid attention to the word standing firm, being steadfast. Um, but I feel like in the season I'm in, everywhere I'm reading in Scripture, I, I see the same thing. Be steadfast, stand firm. Uh, even in our life group, we talked about, hey, here's why we study the book. Because it's, it's going to remind us of, of being steadfast, to remain firm, to stand strong. Uh, we see even this, this, this idea of steadfast, remaining, standing firm, like uh, Paul mentions it in the first part of chapter 15, 15 uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, where he says this. Um, he says, uh, Paul's already told them to stand firm in the gospel, to stand on the gospel. Later on, uh, notice the next chapter in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. What does he tell them? He says, be alert and do what? Stand firm in the faith. For the church of Corinth, for them to stand firm, to remain steadfast, for them in their theological issue that they were dealing with was to, to stand firm in the resurrection. I think for us, I don't know if we, we're just simply dealing with one theological issue. I think we're probably dealing with a whole bunch of theological issues. For maybe it means for us to stand firm to the truths of Scripture. Stand firm. Remain 
steadfast. Here, here's the greatest temptation of today that we see in our churches. We are seeing constant people, um, they call it the great de-churching, or even the great falling away, and it all, stand, it all occurs because people are not remaining firm in the Scriptures, the truths of the Scriptures. You start compromising on one of the fundamentals of the faith, and guess what happens? You start drifting, and Paul says, no. Like, look around you. Look at all the destruction that is going on. Look at this glorious promise and this truth of the resurrection. Constantly stand firm. Remain standing in the truths of the Scripture. Notice our second uh, command he gives us, which is very similar. It's basically almost saying the same thing. He says, be immovable. I just love that word, be immovable. In other words, like nothing must move you from the truths of Scripture. Which means there are constantly things that can move us from the truth of Scripture. Life experience can sometimes move us from the truth of Scripture. Sometimes we experience something horrendous that makes us question everything. Sometimes our culture and the influence of our culture influences us to move away from the truth of Scripture. Be immovable is the opposite even of what Paul describes in Ephesians 4 verse 14. He says, Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. And In other words, like here's the challenge for us in the 21st century. If we are not grounded in Scripture, if we do not know what we believe and why we believe it, guess what's going to be happening? You're going to be tossed to and fro by every winds of doctrine. You're going to be blown around by the wind. You're going to be like a leaf in this fall season, just blown around. And guess what happens to leaves that are just blown around? They decompose, they wither and die. And Paul says, no, I want you to remain steadfast. I want you to remain immovable on the truths of Scripture. In other words, you need to know what you believe, and you need to know why you believe it. You can't just say, I believe this, and have no idea why you believe it. This is why we believe here at our church, like theological training is so important. Knowing God's word and all of God's word and even the parts we don't like. I've always said, I think it's okay for us to have parts of scripture we say we don't like it. But just because we don't like it doesn't mean we don't have to believe it's true. It is true. We have to stand firm on it. Be immovable because our enemy is cunning. And he uses all these kind of human teachings to, and techniques to deceive us. Be steadfast, be immovable. And the third one he tells us is this, always excelling in the Lord's work. What does that mean? It means to be outstanding. It means to be prominent and excel in everything. In the Lord's work. In other words, like every task, every assignment, every job that the Lord calls us to do is the Lord's work. Like most of us think, oh, the Lord's work is ministry. The Lord's work is in the church. No, I don't think that's what Paul means by that. But rather what he means is that in any and every vocational responsibility that you have that the Lord has given you is the Lord's work. You being a spouse is the Lord's work. 
You being a parent is the Lord's work. You being a child is the Lord's work. You being a sibling is the Lord's work. You being a church member or an employee or an employer or a volunteer or a citizen or a neighbor, all of that is the Lord's work. And what does he tell us to do? Excel in it. Be prominent in it. Be outstanding in it. Like, don't just wing it. Like, put all your energy and all your effort in it. Because it's the Lord's work. And I love this promise that he gives us. And the reason why we must excel. And why we must stand firm. And why we must be immovable. Look at the second part of verse 58. And then we're done. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in in vain. Like if you notice, like all three commands is just based one different way of saying persevere, persevere, persevere. And why can we persevere? Because our labor in the Lord is not in vain. I know like in our culture, we're all about this idea of radical and doing far exceeding great things. And then we look at our lives and we're like, well, I'm just kind of a plain Jane. But, but think about what scripture teaches If you're a mother nursing a baby, guess what? Excel in it. If you're a father changing a dirty diaper, excel in it. If you're scrubbing the toilets, excel in it. If you're cleaning up, throw up because your child has the stomach bug, excel in it. Why? Because that work is not in vain. What you do matters, even the ordinary things in life. You going to work, or or maybe you find yourself, you're sitting in a cubicle, and all you do is crunch numbers all day long, and you're like, what is the point of this mundane crunching numbers? Because my supervisor is going to take my numbers and just file it away, and it's not going to mean anything to anybody. Paul says, that labor of you crunching numbers is not in vain. Because it is the Lord's work, and you need to excel in it. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Excel in every ordinary mundane task that the Lord has given you, because it's not in vain, because what you do matters. Right now, what you do matters. Tomorrow you're off, praise the Lord for that. But Tuesday you're back at the office. Guess what? What you do matters. What you do matters. And how, what helps you of, of reminding yourself of what you do matters? The glorious resurrection that is to come. The instant transformation of your heavenly body where we can say death is defeated forever. Christ's victory is my victory. And even though I've not experienced it yet fully, in a sense, I can act like I'm experiencing right now by remaining immovable, steadfast, and excelling in all that the Lord has called me to do. Let me pray for us and then we get to the table. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the promise of the glorious resurrection that is waiting for us. Lord, we have seen in your scripture that you must transform our corruptible to incorruptible, our mortal to immortal bodies. 
so that we may inherit your eternal kingdom. And Lord, we see in your word that it is through the resurrection you will defeat death forever and death will be no more. And Lord, what a wonderful day there will be where there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more destruction, no more death. And to that, we're longing for it. And we're saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. But in the meantime, while we're waiting, help us, Lord, to persevere. Help us to remain steadfast, immovable, and excel in everything that we do. As we continue to pray, um, I just want to give you some time to meditate on, on, on a couple of questions. Like, are you grounded in Scripture? Do you know what you believe? Do you know what Scripture teaches? Are you standing firmly on it or are you being tempted to abandon the truths of Scripture? Why don't you ask the Lord to help you? Why don't you ask a brother or sister to help you? And then maybe for some of you, you're just discouraged in life because you feel like what you do does not matter, it's all meaningless, it's all in vain because you feel like your life is just boring and then mundane. And yet I want to encourage you with this truth. What you do matters. All of your work, no matter how small and insignificant it might seem, is not in vain because it's the Lord's work. And the Lord sees it and the Lord will honor you where he will greet you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So maybe some of you have you've fallen into that temptation of, just not working hard anymore, not excelling, kind of doing it haphazardly. And so maybe it's a good time for you to repent and say, Lord, help me to, to be encouraged to see that all the little things I do matter because it's for you.